uh, community of grace has gathered together to uh, to worship, and y'all met John and Kathy. John's a uh, good friend, a partner in the ministry. He just recently had a retirement ceremony from the Army Reserve, so he served in the Army Reserve, has served in Afghanistan. Is that right? He, he went to Afghanistan and uh, has served in the Army Reserve, so we're thankful for his his service, and I'm thankful for his friendship and his, and his partnership, in, partnership in the ministry. We meet meet together frequently, and I, I appreciate Brother John and glad for him to share God's word with us today. So uh, so welcome. Glad, glad y'all are here. And uh, um, before we have our call to worship, are there prayer concerns? We pray for, for Joyce and for Danny and Lynn. And uh, are there other prayer requests, other prayer needs today? Let's, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we're so thankful to be able to gather together this morning. We're thankful for your kindness toward us. We're thankful for the rain that you have provided for us, Lord. And we're thankful for uh, the bounty of creation and the so many ways you, you provide for our needs, Lord. And we're thankful for the illustration that the rain gives to us of your word going forth and accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it. And, uh, and Lord, we're just thankful for your word and thankful for the opportunity to gather today and uh, hear the proclamation, the preaching of your word, and Lord, we pray that it would be uh, uh, edifying and fruitful for us. And Lord, we do uh, pray for Miss Joyce, we pray for her recovery from the, the, the COVID, and we ask for uh, healing for her and restoration. We pray for Steve as he ministers to her and others that might be providing care, and, and Lord, we pray that Danny and Lynn would have no symptoms and be, be fine and, and, and be, be okay. And Lord, we continue to pray for Miss Sarah and Miss Lou and the season of their life that you would grant them peace and grace and uh, all that they need to prosper and, th and thrive during these days. And Lord, we're so thankful for your provision for us in so many ways. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we seek to, uh, to grow in grace, to grow in faith, to grow in spiritual maturity, and to grow in our faithfulness to your truth and to your work. And Lord, as we meet together, Bless us with your presence and your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right, our call to worship this morning will come from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 will be our, our call to worship. Psalm 19, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? 
Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Lord God, may the prayer of David be our prayer today. That the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We pray that your spirit would grant us the grace that we need to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, you would be exalted, and everything that happens in this, uh, in this room this hour, that, Lord, Christ would be exalted, that we would behold your glory, and by beholding your glory, we would be drawn to worship you in spirit and truth. And we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right, I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnal and turn with me to hymn 136. Lord God, we're so thankful for this opportunity to gather together and to hear the proclamation of your word. Lord, we're thankful that you have spoken through your word perfectly and inerrantly and sufficiently for us. And Lord, may we grow as we hear and listen. We pray for Brother John and pray that you would grant him clarity and power as he preaches to us this day. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 37. It's on? Okay, great. Okay. And we see here in this passage in John chapter 8, starting at verse 27, what exactly Jesus expects to those who respond to his message. Let us listen to God's word. They did not understand that he was telling them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you have Lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own, but I speak just what the Father had taught me. The one who said to me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How could you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, anyone who sins is a slave to sin, and a, sl a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. The word of God for the people of God. 
Many years ago, uh, Walmart figured something out. They figured out they had a lot of dissatisfied customers. And the cust uh, customers were very dissatisfied when they had to return a product, and they would have a hard time returning a product. One of the common reasons they had a problem was they lost the receipt of the product they wanted to return. So uh, Walmart had the great idea of a no questions asked return policy. You could return anything without a receipt and get your money back. Well, they did have a lot of satisfied customers. But guess what? There's people returning stuff that they own for quite some time. There's other people who are returning stuff and getting money for stuff they didn't even buy at Walmart. As a result, Walmart lost a lot of money. And you say, well, how could they do that? Because they had the wrong focus that, you know, having satisfied customers is just one part of the equation. The overall purpose of Walmart is what as a business? To make money. That satisfied customers is just one part of that equation. And to keep that in a balanced equation of being a business. Well, we turn to Jesus and his message. So often we just stress one aspect of Jesus' ministry, calling people to believe in him. But you know, Jesus calls us more times as recorded for us in the Gospels to follow him more than to believe in him. He calls on us to be his disciples more often than he calls us to believe in him. And we typically ask somebody if they're a believer. I'm sure we've asked that, and we've asked that in terms of in an evangelism, but is that really the best question to ask? Well, let's take a look here that Jesus in this passage is not only calling us to believe in him, but he's also calling us to follow him. He's also calling us to honest evaluations of ourselves. First of all, when Jesus calls us to believe, this is a fundamental principle of the Bible even in the Old Testament, that throughout Scripture, God calls us to believe in him. As the author of Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. But also, if we go on further in that verse in Hebrews, it says, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it's belief and diligently seeking him. And when we diligently seek him, what, is it, what are we called to do? We are called to follow Jesus. Now we see following him, and part of following Jesus is an honest self-assessment of ourselves. To look at this text further, let's take a look at that. First of all, he took this crowd here from unbelief to belief. We see that in the very first part of this passage. Look at verse 27 of the text. They did not understand that he was telling them about the Father. But we go on down to verse 30. Look on down to verse 30 in the text. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Okay, so it went from unbelief to belief and putting their faith in him. And this is a fundamental thing. The same word for faith 
is the same word for belief as in John 3.16, where we all know John 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only uh, begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. That word for belief is pistuo. That's what the word is in Greek. It has to do with trust, commit. Now, if the crowd here didn't have a, a, a faith of substance, if it was just mental assent, Jesus could have used a different word. He could have used the Greek word dudike. And dudike means to suppose, to, to think with not so much uh, surety. That word dudike is used by Paul when he's talking to the Corinthians, when he said, a man who thinks he knows something, thinks, that's supposed, okay? He doesn't yet know what he ought to know. So this word, there's some substance to the crowd, what they believe. In fact, Jesus presents the gospel in this text. If they understood the proper context of what Jesus was talking here, they would have got the gospel. Look at verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father had taught me. So what is it Jesus talking about here when the Son of Man is lifted up? We know when he is lifted up, when he is crucified for our sins. So they got the gospel there. So could you imagine what the disciples would have thought? They would have thought, you know, let's put this in a proper context in the Gospel of John. Jesus had already people seeking to kill him, right? At this point in the Gospel of John. There's already the crowds were forsaking Jesus. You know, a couple of chapters before this, didn't a bunch of people just follow him looking for a free lunch? That he performed the miracle of feeding 5,000? And what did Jesus tell them? You're not following me because of the message I have. You're following me just because of the miracles I perform. And the crowd started to leave him. And he was talking about, if you really want a part of me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus didn't bother to unpack with them that that is a saying that we need to believe in the crucified Christ and be intimately connected with him. He just let the crowds go. And the disciples going, what's happening here? So after the disciples, see, there's already somebody out to kill him. There's already the crowds are starting to leave because Jesus' teaching is too tough. They're thinking, oh, wow, these guys believe in Jesus. Mission accomplished. Let's go. You know, let's go, Jesus. But Jesus did not stop there, neither shall we. Now, I think, unfortunately, as evangelicals in our time, we are so happy to get somebody to believe the gospel, we don't take them further with the gospel message and call them to be disciples. This is what Jesus is saying here. He is saying not only believe in him, but two other things he's saying, you must be my disciples, and I must set you free from sin. That's what it really means to be a Christian. We see here in verse 31 and 30 of our, two of our text. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. What is a disciple? Is it somebody who is genuinely teaching uh, committed to the teaching of Jesus. And in the um, first century, people were more familiar with the, the idea of discipleship. 
that it was very common for Jewish people to find a mentor and to follow them and to learn about the Jewish faith and how to live by being mentored by somebody, actually living with them, spending time with them, being intimately involved with them. And as a result of that, they learn a whole way of life. And that's what we learn from Jesus, a whole way of life. And what is the result of following Jesus in that way of life? We are set free. And this is not just the teaching of Jesus. This teaching is throughout the New Testament. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's look at verses 9 through 11 here real quickly, talking about this freedom we get from being free from sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Let's take a look at that. I'll give you a second to turn there. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, or the idolaters, or the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, no slanders, no swindles, will inherit the kingdom of God. It's clear. That's a pretty inclusive list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, people who are habitually involved in them. But where's the hope? of transformation, of being free from all this sin, verse 11. And that is what some of you, what, were. Notice the past tense, you were, but what happened? You have been washed, you have been sanctified. And what does sanctified mean? You've been set apart, set apart from all this wickedness that in the world, and set apart to glorify God as a disciple. And you are justified what does it mean to be justified? Because of the sins that you have been nailed to the cross as a Christian, that you have been declared just before God. You've been declared righteous just as you have never sinned. That's what Jesus is saying here. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Pretty clear, is it not, what the Bible teaches? But there's a lot of confusion in our day, really, what it means to be a disciple, or what sins Jesus had set us free, or really what is sin to begin with. A lot of confusion. But you know what? There's nothing new about confusion in understanding Jesus' message. Look at this crowd. They didn't make much sense. Look at verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, yet we have never been slaves to anyone. How could you say you have set us free? Now, now, okay, let's look at these Jewish folks here. They're saying because they are a physical son of Abraham, because they've been a Jew, they've never been a slave to anybody. Don't they know their own history? Don't they know that they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years? Not only that, what is going on during this time? Are they self-governing? No, who is over the Jewish people? Who has enslaved the Jewish people as Jesus is talking? The Romans. And it's so often that people don't make sense. What they're talking about is, in a sense, that, well, we have this spiritual heritage. And so I really think they caught on the fact that Jesus was talking about something spiritual going on here. That they were just saying, hey, we have this great spiritual heritage. We're a son of Abraham. We're Jewish people. Don't tell us that we're a slave of sin. 
just like when you witness somebody today, the most common things I hear when I talk to people about really following the Lord as a disciple, you know what usually I hear? Usually they take the direction in a spiritual direction. Rather than talk about discipleship, they talk about religious activity they're involved in. Things that are actually good things. Like they say, well, I pray. You know, or I've been baptized, or I'm a member of a church, which are all good things. But the bottom line, have they been set free from sin, and are they following the Lord as a disciple? And, and a, lot of pe- a lot of times people don't make sense like this crowd here. They don't n- realize they need to be free. Because what does Jeremiah tell us about our heart? Our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? That's why we need heart surgery. That's why we need to come to terms with spiritual discernment and really look inside our heart. And why don't people want to look inside their heart and really look what's going on in relationship to God? Because Jesus tells us earlier on in the Gospel of John that our deeds are evil. That's why we don't want to come in the light. And what I encouraged people to do when I share the gospel, I encourage them to look in, to follow the example of Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? That is one of the best books, the best analogy for the Christian life. Other than the Bible, I would say probably that is uh, the best book a Christian can read, to see the analogies that God has really gifted uh, uh, Bunyan for the gift of analogies. But see, as Pilgrim uh, began his journey as a pilgrim, as a follower of Christ, what was the first thing he came to? The The slough of despond. And what was the slough of despond? It was this nasty, murky river that Pilgrim had to go through. And in this murky river, what do you think he came out of that river looking like? A muddy monster just covered with muck and mud. And that's when many people turn back. Why? Because they don't want to get dirty. But I tell you, if you really come to Jesus, you're, you're going to do business with your stuff. Not necessarily the outward activities for you. That may be involved what you're doing outwardly and the sins that you're involved in that the world could see or a few people that really know you could see. But the main thing is he looks at your heart. And when you really look in, that you could really see how wicked you are and how right Jeremiah is. But Jesus doesn't leave you there. You know, uh, Jesus gives you the tools to deal with that mess. He's not like some people. You know what I can't stand? is somebody who tells you you're doing wrong but doesn't do anything to correct it. One of the most frustrating things I see with, with parents, there's certain parents out there that are constantly chastising their children and telling them they got to do better but are not telling them what they need to do to do better. Isn't that crazy? But we've seen it, haven't we? You've seen parents who've done that. Or what about, have you ever had a boss that really doesn't tell you you're doing wrong, just kind of lets you do your own thing for a while, then it comes time for your review, and he tells you you're doing a terrible job. Oh, yeah, thanks for letting me know. You know what I mean? That's terrible. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus tells you by his word, how to live, and how to deal with internally what's going on. And not only, he gives you the power to overcome that. And we also see that the power to overcome that is in 1 John 
3.9. Turn to that verse. That is a very key, important verse we need to look at here. That 1 John 3.9, No one who is born of God continues to sin because God's seed remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Does that mean we're perfect? Does that mean we're, we're not going to ever sin again once we receive Jesus as our Savior and commit to following him as a disciple? No. What it's talking about here, if we look at the Greek, it's talking about habitual sin, being enslaved to sin, that we are free from being enslaved to it. We still stumble and fall at times, but we have been set free. I like how Warren Worsby describes it. He says, Christians are not sinless. He, that, that meaning that we don't sin at all, but we do sin less. What he means by that, we definitely sin less. And we're free more and more as God's sanctifying work works in us. And what really helps you understand this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith is one of the best confession of faith ever written. A very good confession of faith that is uh, very similar and in about the same time frame is the London Confession of Faith. That's what the people who settled in this country, the pilgrims and the Puritans, went by those confessions of faith. They lived by them. And you look at their character they had. That we need to look at our old confessions to give us a, a, a summary of what the Bible teaches. And one of the things I really appreciate, the summary of the Westminster Confession of Faith, is how they describe this sanctification process, becoming more and more dead to sin and more and more alive to Christ. Let me just read a little bit uh, for you to kind of elaborate. Those who are effectually called, that means effectually called means those who are truly drawn to God by the power of his Holy Spirit and regenerated. Regenerated means to give life to. We've been given spiritual life. And how do the Westminster divines describe that? Those who have been given a new heart and a new spirit created in them. You know the new heart that Jeremiah talks about? You know, before we have Jesus, we have a heart of stone. But Jesus gives us a heart of flesh. And what is that heart of flesh, that soft heart, sensitive to the thing the Lord does? It, that we are sanctified and actually and personally by the power of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and his spirit dwells in us, that the power of sin ruling over us in the body is destroyed. That is talking about this radical change. Now, does this radical change happen all at once? Western Mr. Vines go on to say, the desires of the old self are more and more weakened and killed. This is a process. We die more and more to sin, and we live to the right kind of things. Westminster Divines go on to say, at the same time, the, uh, the ability to practice true holiness, okay, without which no one will see the Lord. How much time do you hear people talking about holiness today among professing Christians, among church people? Not too much. That one thing I do appreciate, even though I don't agree with them theologically, but I became a Christian in the Church of Nazarene. They were part of the holiness movement. They talked a lot about holiness. But since then, I haven't heard too much about it. But I don't agree with everything about they follow more along the lines of teaching of Wesley, whereas I follow more along the lines of the teachings of Calvin. But the one thing I do appreciate 
which with the holiness movement, which the same people, the same emphasis, not the same people, the same emphasis that the authors of the Westminster Divines had, that a sense of holiness, intentional holiness, where we intentionally set ourselves apart from God. And Westminster Divines go on to say, has brought life and strengthened by all saving graces. God starts by giving us this new heart and breaking the total uh, control of sin, making us more like him. Gives us the ability to say no to the wrong kind of things and the ability to say yes to the right kind of things. So we need to, where do we start in getting this freedom in this new life that Christ promises? Well, just like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, how do they start? They, say, they introduce themselves saying, I'm Alcoholics. Now, now with us, we need to start and say that whatever we're enslaved to sin for, realize that we're broken and need Christ. That's where it all starts. And how does this new life describe that we're having, having Christ? Is it a matter of cruising onto heaven? Or how does the Bible describe Christians? The Bible describes Christians as athletes. How many of you played sports when you're, you know, in high school or some of you went on to college and played ball? How much effort did you have to put into it to, to play? A lot of effort, a lot of training. Okay, but that's how we are described as Christians and doers of the word. What is the implied past? Not only do we know the word, but we actually do it. A hardworking farmer. Now, how many of you know farmers? Is it, is it really easy to be a farmer or is it hard work? I tell you, I worked with some farmers when I was in the Army. I was a combat engineer, and we would work not only two and three days straight, you know, doing combat exercises, but we spent six and seven uh, days straight working, laying brick block, you know, those big old block buildings, 12 to 14 hours a day. And, you know, the farmers I worked with looked at that as a vacation. But farmers are working hard, but that's how Christians are described. Another way is runners in the race. How do you run in the race? Do you just kind of casually stroll? No, you give it everything you got. And lastly, what I like how a, a disciple is described, how a Christian is described, is a soldier. As I tell you, if you're a soldier, that's an identity you need to embrace or to be disastrous. Just like we need to embrace the identity of Christ. One of the things that really helped me early on as a soldier to realize that was who I was and that's what I was committed to, to really to be successful in that system. It's the same way as a Christian. We must embrace our identity as Christians. What does a Christian mean? Little Christ. And we need to embrace that identity. So this is, we need to, and the thing is, you think, well, this looks like, this sounds like hard work. Oh, yeah, it is but it's the best way to live. God's not a cosmic kill, uh, killjoy. He knows the best way for us to live. And then by embracing his life and making an intentional effort to him, we really find out what real life is all about. It's kind of like this. And I'll close with this example. That during, at the end of the Civil War, there's two kinds of slaves. Okay, when the, the Union forces came in, and set the, free, uh, the slaves free, there are some slaves that stayed on the plantation, that stayed working for the same master, 
Nothing really changed after the Civil War. You know, they were declared free, but they stayed pretty much in the same lifestyle. And some of them even took on the name of their former master. If their master's name was Jones, they took on his name, Jones, stayed on the plantation. But there is another group of slaves that took on the name of Freeman. Have you, have you ever met anybody with the name of Freeman? You know, somebody uh, that had him, took on that identity. These former slaves took on that name because they wanted to be free, and they got off the plantation and really embraced their freedom and their new way of life. It is my hope and prayer that all of us embrace the life we have of free men in Christ Jesus, and we present the gospel. We present the gospel as freedom from sin and in the ticket to the right way to live. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we praise you for the God that you are. We thank you so much for saving us. We thank you for the freedom that we have in you. We thank you for the right way to live because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Mark, if you'd close us in our closing hymn.